Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chat about the brain drain at City Hall, learned about Big Sugar's stealth takeover of American food, and pondered art in the age of COVID. All this was the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for May 7th, 2021. Chuck Mertz spoke with anthropologist James Doucette Battle on sugar, diabetes, radicalized science, and his book, Sweetness in the Blood. How did big sugar take over America, and why is sugar in virtually every processed food in America? The answers may shock you on This Is Hell, every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. How much is the legacy of slavery recognizable, I guess is the bigger question, by the public today, even for those who are descendants of the system of slavery? I think it's wholly unrecognizable. Um, no one drinks sugar water anymore um, um, in Louisiana. Um, there are far more um, seductive options available to all of us these days. Um, my grandmother weaned all of her children on sugar water and she swore by it. Um, none of them became a diabetic. Um, she was a diabetic. But um, when I was in graduate school, I read Sidney Mintz's uh, um, classic, Sweetness and Power, The Place of Sugar in Modern History. And it made me realize that on the maternal side of my family that we were completely embedded in this history of sugar. Um, not just sugar as a commodity and a historical artifact, but sugar as a um, social term that we all use for diabetes. Um, and uh, that really affected the trajectory of my research. And the way in which sugar is used, I just thought this was really fascinating when you write, in fact, sugar was the term we used to refer to diabetes, but sugar also served as a term of warmth and affection, a personal pronoun, a verbal embrace that validates the sweetness of being one uh, brings to life. It pays homage to the mean, meaning it signifies within the family and wider community. The intimate social bonds experienced and labeled around sugar coexisted in relative cultural harmony with the fatalistic acceptance of sugar in the form of diabetes. So what explains such good feelings around a word with such a deadly history? Why are words like sugar and, and referring to people as sweetness, not terms of derision or, or maybe even reminders of a horrible era instead? Well, the term is sugar. We call each other sugar. <laughs> That's correct. And um, I think it shows how from a social perspective, not only were we um, embedded in that history, that we embodied that history, but that despite um, the pain, the suffering, the trauma, the, um, the racial labor, the uh, extraction and exploitation of black um, and brown bodies, a certain social life was created and lived and shared and celebrated within our domestic and social and community spaces despite the fact that, yes, um, sugar was changing nutritional destinies, not just um, in, the, in the North, which um, Sidney Mintz uh, discusses in his book, um, but it was also changing our nutritional destinies in the, in, um, the South as well, and um, increasingly around the world. How much of the success of capitalism in the United States is through sugar water, which is not good for you? Is capitalism successful because it distributes something that is bad for you? Um, I would have to say that the influences of sugar and sugar sweetened or sweetened beverages has become so globalized that it's difficult to pinpoint any one particular area of uh, sovereign power or influence. Um, I'm teaching a class on drugs in U.S. society um, and its global connections. And um, this week, um, my students, well, last week they read Sweetness and Power, but this week we're looking at the phenomena of bubble tea and the ways in which bubble tea has completely captivated many in the young generation. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, it's a sweetened tea. It's uh, originated in Taiwan. And college students just absolutely rave over it. And it contains these tapioca balls, which uh, are yummy and gummy, and you can chew them after you drink the tea. But they also contain uh, significant amounts of caffeine. And uh, 
I have my students um, read Sweetness and Power in order to situate the ways in which sugar um, has insinuated itself in new ways and new guises and new beverages. And in doing so, have them reflect on, on how um, they themselves have come to embrace sugar-sweetened beverages and how, without any sort of coercion, we continue to, in a sense, um, find new ways of consuming, in a sense, um, sweetness and power. When you mentioned this globalization of sugar, would it be fair to say that the United States exported a sugar culture to the rest of the world, or is that misleading? That is mis... Well, from a corporate perspective, yes, we amplified it, but um, the ground zero of sugar production um, is in the Caribbean, Brazil, Cuba, particularly in, in the um, latter half of the 19th century. Um, Louisiana is a minor player in the sugar industry. Um, after the Haitian Revolution, Haitian refugees uh, came to Southern Louisiana and uh, they brought varieties of sugarcane that were able to withstand the periodic cold snaps in Southern Louisiana. And a domestic sugar industry was born um, in Southern Louisiana. Um, later in the 20th century, South Florida became a hub of uh, sugar production, but none of these areas competes to, um, has ever been competitive with the massive sugar industries of Jamaica, Haiti before the revolution, and um, Brazil and Cuba. Uh, so the United States, in a sense, um, in terms of sugar production, has never been a major player, but in terms of the corporate uh, branding and packaging and innovation around new forms of sugar consumption. Yes, the United States has definitely led the way. So what's been the impact then? I, I didn't even think about this. I, I'm, I probably have 65 questions written for you. Um, so what's the impact then of corn syrup when it comes to sugar here in the United States? How does that fit into this idea of diabetes and how it affects uh, a certain race of people? Great question, um, and that's why, um, and that's why the book is entitled "Recruiting Sweetness" because, um, in some significant um, respects, we've kind of not moved beyond sugar, but there are new forms of sweetness that um, warrant discussion, and corn syrup is one of them. Um, Robert Lustig at UCSF put together a wonderful presentation. It's available on YouTube called "Sugar: The Bitter Truth." And he basically argues that corn syrup and sugar, that the body treats them in similar ways um, in terms of uh, metabolizing um, the sugar or the glucose therein. Um, and that basically the body treats them, treats them the same. But what we have here in terms of corn syrup is part of a larger uh, political and economic phenomena that occurred in the 1970s and 80s through the Nixon Farm Bill that um, gave financial incentives for farmers to grow um, um, massive amounts of corn. And the technology was there um, to convert that corn into corn syrup. And um, in terms of the book, my major concern is not necessarily on these new forms of sweetness as much as it is upon the changing social contexts of our society that contribute to diabetes risk irrespective of race. And um, before our conversation, um, you were alluding to that in terms of the pandemic. and. The American Psychological Association two or three weeks ago released a study um, that, that stated that millennials and Generation X, Generation Y, um, I can't keep up with these generations, but that they have experienced a significant amount of weight gain during the pandemic. And I think the pandemic um, gives us a, a uh, some sort of indication, it, 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 it warrants our attention 
to 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 what type two diabetes, what obesity, what type two diabetes risk will look like after the pandemic? Because arguably, um, obesity and type two diabetes will uh, persist long after the pandemic has passed. And as you were mentioning during your monologue, you know, how do we anticipate the ways in which future crises will affect the ways in which we live, the ways in which we move, the ways in which we eat? Um, increasingly, um, I think um, you may have experienced this or some of your friends um, may have, have also experienced the ways in which eating has changed during the pandemic, the ways in which we have increasingly begun to order our groceries and have them delivered, the ways in which we have begun to patronize food delivery services, um, combined with lockdowns and quarantines and shelter in place. Um, this has affected, I think, the ways in which we have metabolized, in a sense, the pandemic in ways that we're going to, um, and my research is set to investigate further um, after or during and after the pandemic. Because right now we have no reliable data as to how the pandemic will affect the metabolic health of people in the United States. Smith chatted with the CTU's Tara Stamps about the chaos in Mayor Lori Lightfoot's senior leadership. With three top-level execs bailing out of the troubled Chicago public school system and vacancies across the administration, is City Hall heading towards new levels of dysfunction? Find out only on News from the Service Entrance every Thursday at 2 p.m. Hello, Tara. How are you? I'm doing well, all things considered. I'm fine. Right on. It is good to hear your voice on the other side of COVID. And, and uh, oh, I believe you. <laughs> it's such a good feeling, right? Um, now, with all of that in mind, let's get to it. Earlier this week, Janice Jackson, Dr. Janice Jackson, um, put some respect on her name. Dr. Janice Jackson resigned from the Chicago public school system. Subsequently, two others in the Chicago public school system, two other people in the hierarchy, uh, resigned as well. Um, What is, and and I want to get to some of the things she said in a little bit, but initially upon hearing this news, how does that sit, you think, with the average parent in the district that has gone through all kinds of crazy already with remote learning, not going back, going back, um, and, and all the other issues that surround the, the third largest school district in the United States. I'm a mom, you know, everybody knows, most people know that I'm a mother, right? And, um, and anytime I think about something, I always think about it. The first reaction is as a mom. So my, I have custody of my nephew who's actually a junior at Lincoln Park High School. 
So I am still connected to the Chicago public school system, kind of, as a parent. I do all of his report cards, pickups, and all that jazz. Um, and one of the things that always hurts our children is instability. Um, one of the things that, even when communities were being, you know, continue to be disenfranchised, or they were being gentrified, or school closings was going on, one of the things that children did have to look forward to, to some degree, uh, was the stability of the school system. And now that has just been snatched from underneath them. And um, it's kind of upsetting because you're thinking, or I'm thinking as a mom, well, dang, that means that now we got to figure out this big mess of what school is going to look like. Uh, for the next school year with a whole new group of people who don't understand the intricacies of this relationship, of our communities, of everything that our children have gone through, through everything our parents have gone through. And so you really, um, as a mother, it's just for me upsetting because you at least want to be able to count on the people that in charge, even if they're not making every decision you think you would want them to make, there at least there's some stability there that you think you can work with them. And now, you know, that's just out the window. And, I, you know, it's, it's kind of unusual that you would have the whole top brass of organizations leave. Mm. Um, so that, that's a whole nother um, situation to itself. You know, you would think, like, maybe if Janice left and her second-in-command could kind of step in and, and, you know, kind of field it out until we get, a, you know, get some stability or hire somebody new. But everybody... Everybody, everybody go. Everybody go. Right. Um, and I just found out the person that's over COPA uh, resigned this week as well. Yes. So, you know, it's something going on in City Hall, and it's not Chicago Teachers Union. Um, there's some there's some some dynamics happening with the relationships there, um, and so this throws us all into a kind of tailspin. But I can assure you, uh, Jesse. Stacey, Crystal, Maria, the top brass of the Chicago Teachers Union are locked and loaded, rooted and ready. So um, we're ready to, to continue the narrative that we've been marching on, which is equity for our schools and our communities and really fighting for a school system that Chicago families and children deserve. And we're not going anywhere in our fight. So whoever gets appointed, uh, whoever the mayor decides to appoint, uh, we're going to continue to push them to implement the common good standards that we want in our contract um, as we seek to build a truly equitable and sustainable community school district, uh, one that funds the school communities based on student needs, you know, one that will equitably spend this $1.8 billion we just got in additional uh, federal COVID relief dollars. Mm -hmm. And so we are here to do the work um, that's necessary for Chicago school children and their families. There's talk um, of, of the difficulty Mayor Lightfoot may have in finding someone who wants to come back that may have been part of uh, the Chicago public school system as a former student or, or, or uh, employee or teacher to come back that may have interest in the job. Is it, <laughs> is it viable or is it reasonable rather to add or to say that this may be the toughest hire this mayor will have in her tenure while she's mayor? Yes, it's going to be a tough hire. Um, because not only is it just, okay, first of all, it's going to be a tough hire because it's a tough job. Just That's just flat out, right? That's what, that's what they need. That's, you're talking about running the third largest school district in the country. That is just a tough job. But added to that, it's just all of the intricacies, the nuances that make Chicago, Chicago. And coming into a system where you have to really be able to come back head on, you know, blatant inequities that were amplified during COVID, right? So you got to come into a district that you know has a fighting union. That's not true in all places. Uh, but everybody knows we've been demonstrative that we are, you know, CTU is going to take it to the mat for the things that we believe in specifically when it um, comes to our teachers and clinicians and paraprofessionals and our families and students. Like, we are unapologetic in that fight. Now, what, what's a, you know, as a, as a member and a person that's been in this work for a long time, what vexes me is that it just doesn't, it doesn't always have to go to a fight. 
um, if people keep their word, which our, unfortunately our mayor has not, this wouldn't have been able, we didn't have to, to fight this out, right? When you're talking about putting kids and families first and making sure that there's transparency and the buildings are clean and all of the things that you would want for your child are in place, then there should not be a fight. If you want for your child the same thing that I want for my child, then there should not be a fight. If you want as a professional the same thing that I want and demand as a professional, then there should not be a fight. The fight comes in when you think we're supposed to expect less or accept less than what we deserve. And that we need to tell our families and communities to expect less than what they deserve. Um, that's when the fight comes in. But yes, this is going to be a difficult hire. But what I've been noticing, not just only in spaces, you know, like DPS, but also like even in small groups that I'm a member of, right, is that oftentimes the people that need to be in the spot are not in the spot. And mm. the people are not in the spot is because they fear the kind of leadership that's going to take over that spot. So if you don't fear independent thinkers and innovative thinkers and people who really, really love um, our city and love all the members of our various communities, then you should not be afraid because somebody is fit to take that on. But are you going to allow the people that you choose to lead the way they need to lead? That's the biggest question. Janice Jackson on her way out has done a series of interviews with folks. Uh, we just talked a moment ago to Sarah Carp, the education reporter for WBEZ. She just finished interviewing her. Unfortunately, well, just legally, that interview is embargoed until WBEZ decides to broadcast it. Um, getting the impression from Sarah, though, that that the idea of uh, her, her leaving is kind of just being fed up with all of it. The fighting, um, the, the back and forth with the, her and the mayor, uh, the, the whole thing with COVID, trying to figure out how to run this district, all that. She says a different thing, though, in, in an interview with the Chicago Sun-Times that uh, was published this week. Um, she was very adamant about saying that the politics of education got in the way of being able to do things. And that she was very direct about her, her feelings toward how negotiations and things with, with the Chicago Teachers Union. And it's difficult in a city like Chicago. First of all, there is no other city like Chicago. It's difficult nope. in the, <laughs> it's difficult in this city to not do something on this level and, and not and have it not have a political foundation or at least element to it. The mayor runs every aspect of the city, so therefore it's political by nature. When you think about how these negotiations have went in the past uh, with this mayor, the idea that this mayor has to hire now three people for this for these <laughs> positions with the Chicago uh, uh, public school system and then the public school system itself and its stability moving forward past COVID. Um, just moments ago, uh, Governor Prisker is suggesting, strongly suggesting that June 11th will be the day that the city and the state open up fully. What do you think is on the horizon for, for the 335,000 kids in this system? Um, just reading the tea leaves, if you will, based on what you've heard and seen this past week. You know what? I have to suppress my inner Tara because everything that you <laughs> want to say, anarchy! But, <laughs> but I'm going I'm to temper that. Um, I heard a couple of slights that our dear beloved sister took at us, and that's unfortunate uh, because we really do want the best for Janice Jackson, and we want the best for her and her colleagues. Uh, but for her to take a swipe like she did at at uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, is like MJ Pippen and Robin all quitting halfway during the playoffs and then blaming the Pacers because it was too hard. Right. <laughs> but, and, like, I don't even use sports analogies like that. That came from our beloved brother at CTU, Ronnie Reese. But when I read it, I'm like, that's exactly right. Sweetie, you don't get to quit in the middle of the game and then blame it on us. Like, yo, everybody got a job to do in this fight. To be black in this country is political. To be black and female in leadership is to be political. 
when you have the mayor having sole control over all the entities, like you said, of the city, then by nature it's political. But you knew that when they came for you. See, the problem is they come for you, right? But whoever comes for you expects you to do their bidding. And then when you get locked in and you realize that you're up against the person that sent for you, then it's a problem. This is why you need an elected representative school board, because anybody they send for, they're going to be able to tell when they need to leave, and they're going to be into it all the time, because the moment you don't do the bidding of the mayor, then you at odds with each other. Jessica. Oh, hey, dude. What's happening across the street? A parking lot party? That doesn't look like a bank function. No, it's not the bank. It's Kyle. Kyle is throwing a parking lot party? Where is he? Oh, he's right over there. I can't the... believe this. He knows I'm trying to establish a legitimate Hey, venue. goofballs. Do you want to experience technologically advanced sweetness? Excuse me? By using quantum optics, I have created a new strain of sugar called the Pearl. Here, try a free sample. Uh, thanks. No, this is delicious. Hold on, why don't you go back inside? What the heck are you doing here, Kyle? I'm so glad you asked because you know what? You've had your parties. You've had your lumpin' nose beef thingy. You've had your Labor Day party. And, and you've had that weird space buster thing down the block. But guess what? Now I got my party, and it's called Bridgeport Nose Candy. And we got China and her pushcart full of artisanal candies sitting right there, selling candy, and all the funds are that we raise are going to go to... Yeah, here's, here's a flyer. Bridgeport Nose Candy. Hmm. Interest fees 20 You knew about this? Oh, of course. Why didn't you tell me? Because you would have said no. What? Observe, this is what loyalty and friendships looks like. Hold on a second, Ed. Kyle, how did you pull in all these people at 20 bucks a pop? Yeah, I don't get it. It's just homemade chocolate. There's there's like 100 people here. Why don't you try this? Oh, Uh, no, no, no. no. Your friend, though, if he wants to join the party, he will have to purchase something. Show me your permit, dude. Ed, pay the lady. You gotta try this. Nah, forget him. I only serve customers who can hang. These are seriously the best. What What do you call them? These are cocoa coconut bumps. Outstanding. Best thing I've ever eaten. Jamie, are you all right? He's fine. Can you feel your soul? Yeah, Jamie. I'm getting taller. Breathe it in. What? These are like eating little pieces of heaven. Never even thought about how cool my perception of the world has been enhanced by these little candies. What is wrong with these people? They're enjoying handmade artisanal candy. I'm actually feeling a little... Wait. Bridgeport knows candy. Yes. Bridgeport knows candy. Candy. That's right. Nose candy. Mm. Yeah, so. What'd you put in these cookies, China? What are you talking about? What was that? Uh, hey, what China, are you doing? hey, get your hand uh, off my cart. A police scanner. Uh, time to blow. What? Let's roll out. Wow. Jessica, call me. Hey, no, 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 don't leave. Oh my Trust God. me. I love you. Hey, come oh back. Ed, you ruined it. Yeah. Oh, Ed, you stupid. Thanks a lot, Ed. She had all your money. Yeah. We were raising money for Lumpin' Radio, Ed. Lumpin' WTF Radio. Oh. I feel real weird. Is the copro melting? Hey, that's only chocolate inside that candy, right? Oh, mostly. Say what? Whoa, the air is viscous. Go sleep it off, Ed. Guys? Whoa, the air is viscous. These are like eating little pieces of heaven. 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 I need your candy. 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 I need your candy.
This week on The Biden Files, the FBI raids Rudy, Facebook says Trump will remain banned, Biden calls for a new New Deal, a colleague admits Republican Representative Matt Gates paid girls for sex, the GOP tries to oust Liz Cheney, and herd immunity is unlikely on a wild week for The Biden Files. Day 100, April 29th. On his 100th day in office, President Biden called for a major reshaping of American society in front of Congress, urging a vast expansion of safety net and educational programs while arguing forcefully for new government spending on jobs, training, and opportunity. Biden delivered his remarks with Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris sitting behind him. He became the first president to deliver an address to Congress with two women behind him. Framing it as a once in a generation opportunity, Biden explicitly called for a new New Deal, gambling that in America beaten down by the pandemic and great differences between the rich and the poor is ready for a seismic shift. Biden also offered an optimistic message and said those programs would be funded by taxes on the very wealthy. He added the USA was turning the corner in the fight against COVID. Biden's plan would spend $1.8 trillion to expand access to child care, education, paid leave, and an extension of some tax credits. It would provide $200 billion in universal pre-K education, more than $100 billion for community colleges, and set aside $225 billion to create a national paid family and medical leave program. The program, combined with other spending, would meet a commitment of some $4 trillion in investment in America by the Biden administration. It would also bring the United States on par with most other advanced Western societies. The FBI executed a search warrant on Rudy Giuliani's apartment in New York, seizing his electronic devices and other materials. The warrant was related to an ongoing criminal investigation into Giuliani's dealings in Ukraine. The search was an extraordinary move for prosecutors to take against a sitting lawyer, let alone a lawyer for a former president. It signals grave legal peril for a man who was also once the mayor of New York City. Giuliani's involvement in Ukraine directly led to Trump's impeachment. The Biden administration said it would ban menthol cigarettes, achieving a long-sought public health goal of civil rights and anti-tobacco groups. The proposal would also include a ban on all mass-produced flavored cigars, which become popular with teenagers. Big Tobacco has strenuously fought the action for decades, despite mounting evidence that the products are linked to higher death rates among black smokers. Menthol cigarettes have been marketed aggressively to blacks in the United States. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's office repeatedly prevented health officials from releasing the true death toll in New York nursing homes. The state may have undercounted the true death toll by as much as 50%. The embattled Cuomo also addressed the media for the first time in months. He remained defiant and denied the multiple sexual misconduct allegations that have been leveled at him. Day 101, April 30. In the aftermath of a raid on Rudy Giuliani's apartment, it was revealed that the FBI had warned Giuliani and several other leading Trump acolytes that they were the target of a Russian disinformation operation aimed at damaging President Biden ahead of the 2020 election. Giuliani was slated to receive a so-called defensive briefing by the FBI following earlier warnings that he was being manipulated into carrying false information involving the Ukraine and Hunter Biden. However, when Giuliani continued to try to find damaging information on the Bidens and pushed information publicly that was fed to him by the Kremlin, the FBI backed off, fearing it would complicate their legal case against him. A key facet of the investigation into Giuliani appears to be the firing of former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Giuliani actively worked to oust Yovanovitch, believing she had been obstructing his efforts to dig up dirt on the Biden family. A career civil service employee, Yovanovitch was the target of some in Ukraine as she had fingered them as corrupt and worked to deny American dollars flowing to them as a result. The Senate has restored an Obama-era regulation to reduce climate-changing methane emissions from oil and gas fields. Trump had eliminated federal requirements for oil and gas companies to monitor and repair methane leaks from pipelines and wells. And President Biden blamed Trump for the current problems at the U.S.-Mexico border, saying he inherited, quote, one god-awful mess. Biden claimed it was the result of the failure to have a real transition, cooperation from the last administration like every other administration has done. Biden also said he would return more than $14 billion to the Pentagon, which was diverted by Trump for the construction of a wall on the border. He also canceled all related construction contracts. 
Day 102, May 1st. The confidant and alleged sex trafficker close to Florida Republican Representative Matt Gates wrote a confession letter last year detailing how he and Gates paid for sex with multiple women, including a minor who was 17 at the time. Joel Greenberg's letter was sent to Roger Stone and was part of a failed attempt to secure a pardon from Trump. Greenberg's letter reads in part, quote, on more than one occasion, this individual was involved in sexual activities with several of the other girls, the congressman from Florida's first congressional district and myself. From time to time, gas money or gifts, rent or tuition payments were made to several of these girls, including the individual who is not yet 18. I did see the acts occur firsthand and Venmo transactions, cash app or other payments were made to these girls on behalf of the congressman. Stone reportedly asked Greenberg for a quarter of a million dollars for his aid in securing a pardon. Federal agencies are now investigating two incidents on American soil that appear similar to the so-called Havana Syndrome. That was a mysterious event reported by American diplomats based in Cuba in 2016 that researchers now believe was a microwave weapons attack. A new attack reportedly occurred in November near the Ellipse, which is the Oval Lawn south of the White House. It sickened a National Security Council official. Biden nominated a critic of Trump's immigration policies to serve as director of ICE. If confirmed, Harris County, Texas Sheriff Ed Gonzalez would be the first politically appointed director for ICE in years. Trump never had a Senate-confirmed director for that bureau. Republicans in the Florida legislature passed an election overhaul bill that would place restrictions on drop boxes and on residents' ability to vote by mail. While that bill is less onerous than a version originally mooted, it is part of a Republican nationwide effort to restrict voting. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis told Fox News that, quote, of course, he would sign the bill. Day 103, May 2nd. The United States formally restricted travel from India, citing a surge in COVID cases in that nation and the emergence of coronavirus variants. The policy does not apply to American citizens, permanent residents, or other people with exemptions. India set a world record with 400,000 cases in a single day, and now has at least 20 million cases. India is also struggling with a hospital system near collapse. Secret Trump-era rules for targeted extrajudicial killings were revealed and suspended by the Biden administration. The rules applied to so-called direct action operations, such as drone strikes and commando raids, and the rules gave commanders unusually broad latitude to make decisions about attacks. Prior to Trump, it was accepted that there should be, quote, near certainty that civilians will not be injured or killed in these operations. Trump, however, made an exception to that, allowing civilians to be casualties in counterterrorism attacks. The Biden administration reversed course and said it would raise the refugee ceiling to 62,500. Previously, they had said they would keep Trump's historically low refugee admissions target at 15,000. The Biden administration also reunited four migrant families separated due to Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy at the southern border. However, more than 1,000 families remain separated. DHS officials say it is unclear where some of the family members are because officials under Trump declined to keep records. And Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said he does not support the bill to make D.C. the nation's 51st state, claiming instead that a constitutional amendment is needed. Manchin cited findings from the Justice Department under Presidents Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter and comments from then Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Manchin cited the 23rd Amendment, which was ratified in 1961, which gave D.C. three electoral votes in presidential elections. Day 104, May 3rd. Health experts now believe the United States will not be able to reach so-called herd immunity against COVID. This is due to a rise in variants and a less than complete vaccine rollout. Instead, experts now hope the virus will become a manageable threat, but one that is likely to cause renewed outbreaks. House Leader and Republican Representative Liz Cheney and the GOP appeared to reach a breaking point after she accused Trump of poisoning democracy. Trump had issued a statement from his new blog and Save America PAC claiming that Biden's election, quote, will be known from this day forth as the big lie. Cheney issued her own statement saying that, quote, the 2020 president election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it is, is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our system. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was subsequently caught on a hot mic saying he had, quote, lost confidence in Cheney. 
McCarthy made the comment in off-air remarks to a Fox News Channel host before a television interview. McCarthy said that he has, quote, had it with Cheney. I think she's got real problems. I've had it with her. You know, I've lost confidence. Well, someone just has to bring a motion. That will probably take place. Day 105, May 4th. A federal judge accused Attorney General William Barr of misleading the court about how he decided that Trump would not be charged with obstructing Robert Mueller's Russian investigation. Judge Amy Berman Jackson called Barr and Justice Department lawyers under him disingenuous and claimed that Barr had already decided to protect Trump before Mueller's report was released. Jackson ordered that contemporaneous memos by Barr should be made public. Republicans in the House of Representatives moved to remove Liz Cheney from their party leadership for denouncing Trump's false claims. Cheney, who is the number three House Republican and the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, survived a similar rebellion earlier in the year. The FDA is now expected to authorize Pfizer's vaccine for children as young as 12 by next week. Kids now account for 22% of new cases in the U.S. The number of people getting their first vaccine dose, however, has declined in 47 of 50 states. The USA is now close to vaccinating 150 million people overall. More than 56% of adult Americans have received at least one dose of a vaccine. Nearly 105 million are fully vaccinated. A U.S. bankruptcy administrator told a federal judge he should dismiss the National Rifle Association's efforts to declare bankruptcy. That is a setback for the group at the close of a federal court hearing to consider its petition. That recommendation bolstered the arguments of New York Attorney General Letitia James. She has fought the NRA's attempts to relocate from New York to Texas to get out from under her aggressive investigation of that association. The motion also came after senior NRA executives acknowledged in testimony that they received lavish perks, signaling the Rifle Association is in fact solvent. More than 180 businesses, executives, and community leaders publicly called for expanded voting access in the state of Texas, saying they oppose any changes that would restrict eligible voters' access to a ballot. Two bills, currently in that state's Republican-controlled legislature, would reallocate polling machines away from urban areas, limit early voting, and add criminal penalties to various parts of the process. In a four-day span from April 26th to 29th, 28 new restrictions on legal abortion in America were signed into law in seven states. That is the most anti-abortion legislation to become law in a single week in more than a decade. As of April 29th, 536 abortion restrictions have been put forward across 46 states since the first of the year. 61 of those bills were enacted. The volume of bills being proposed is historic, representing a new high-water mark of anti-abortion legislation. Day 106, May 5th. Facebook was justified in its decision to suspend Trump after the insurrection at the Capitol, said that company's oversight board. That means Facebook does not have to reinstate Trump's access to its platform and Instagram, but the panel said the company was wrong to impose an indefinite ban and said Facebook has six months to either ban Trump permanently or should reinstate him. Twitter has banned Trump for good. Lawmakers lashed out at that ruling as Republicans called the move part of an alleged anti-conservative campaign by tech companies and said the decision set a dangerous precedent for censorship of political figures. Democrats also criticized the company, noting how Facebook has essentially monetized divisive content and can be used to spread lies. Trump slammed Facebook, Google, and Twitter, some of which have been major fundraising platforms for him in response, calling them corrupt. Quote, free speech has been taken away from the president of the United States because the radical left lunatics are afraid of the truth. Trump also began fundraising off of that announcement, texting supporters with a link to donate to his committee. The number two House Republican publicly called Wednesday for the removal of Representative Liz Cheney from his party's leadership. Representative Steve Scalise, who is the GOP whip, said he would back New York Representative Elise Stefanik for Cheney's post instead. Trump also endorsed Stefanik to replace Cheney and issued a fresh statement lambasting Cheney for unknowingly and foolishly rejecting his lie that he lost the election due to fraud. The willingness of Republican lawmakers to oust a respected elder for telling the truth and defending democracy is being seen as an ominous sign for the future of America. And Rudy Giuliani's advisors have been pressing aides to Trump to reach into his estimated $250 million war chest to pay Giuliani for his efforts to overturn the results of the election. 
Giuliani led the effort to subvert the results of the race in a series of battleground states, but he was not paid for the work. Giuliani's name was also used to raise money during the election fight. Trump has stridently refused to pay Giuliani after an associate, Maria Ryan, sent an email to Trump campaign officials seeking $20,000 a day for his work. Day 107, May 6th. The United States reversed course and said it would support the waiver of intellectual property protections for COVID vaccines in what is considered a global breakthrough in ensuring vaccine equity worldwide. The World Trade Organization had sought to suspend property protections in an effort to ramp up vaccine production, but President Biden had initially balked and that stance had been backed up by the likes of Bill Gates. COVID infections in the U.S. are now at their lowest level in seven months, however. Pfizer also reported it made $3.5 billion largely off the COVID vaccine in the first quarter alone. The United States is now facing a number of serious shortages from labor to lumber to rental cars that may impact the economic recovery. The restaurant industry is particularly challenged as experienced servers had a year to find other jobs with better job security and fewer health risks. In major cities, many simply left town. A federal judge in Washington blocked a nationwide eviction moratorium. Judge Dabney Friedrich said the CDC exceeded its authority by issuing a broad moratorium on evictions across all rental properties. He ordered that vacated. The moratorium, first enacted by Trump and then extended by President Biden, was designed to prevent mass evictions and not exacerbate a public health emergency. It is unclear if the CDC will seek to reinstate it. President Biden said he would appeal. Trump's Navy Secretary Kenneth Braithwaite took 22 foreign and domestic trips during his short eight-month stint in the job at a cost to the taxpayer of $2.4 million. Braithwaite reportedly flew to Wake Island, an atoll in the Pacific Ocean, where the Navy says no U.S. Marines or sailors are stationed at a cost of close to a quarter of a million dollars one week before President Biden's inauguration. Braithwaite reportedly took more trips than any other senior Pentagon civilian. 85% of Americans who watched Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress approved of that speech. More than two-thirds of Republicans believe the election was stolen. GOP leaders are now worried that Trump's big lie will keep people from voting. Trump is expected to announce he will run for president in 2024 next month. These are the Biden Files. Bad at Sports talked with Carrie Seacrest, a longtime pillar of Chicago's art exhibition scene. Seacrest detailed how her South Loop Gallery had to pivot in the pandemic and what the future of in-person art might look like. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Uh, I'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Carrie Seacrest. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Thank you for having me. Carrie, I think you are in one of the most interesting situations uh, in, through this pandemic. And I actually think the last time I was in a Chicago gallery right before the pandemic lockdown was in your gallery. We were talking about how you were about to close out your your physical space and you were launching your last one or two exhibitions and and starting on a, an, well, continuing an exciting experiment with, uh, with a group next door. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I would say my pandemic experience uh, was definitely an interesting chapter in the almost now three decade story of Carrie Seacrest Gallery. Um, so we had been in the space we had been since 2003. Um, and uh, as other galleries were moving to other areas of the, of the city, I had kind of stayed there just because I had a really wonderful arrangement with the building. Um, and it, they came to, we had kind of a handshake uh, situation of if you wanted to make a change, you would let the other one know in 90 days. And um, so back in, uh, I guess, February of 2020, they came to me out of the blue and said, uh, we need to make a change where somebody else is moving in. So at, at the time, I this was very much pre-COVID, and I was about to exhibit at the Armory in New York, uh, which we were doing a very unique exhibition that involved artist Adrian Wong and also an animal um, communicator, basically. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, which is one of the strangest things I've ever done in an art fair. And I had no idea how it would go. And happily, it went very, very well. But um, 
I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go and do this. And when I get back, I will figure out what to do next. And when I got back was March 9th. And by March 11th, every, everything was closing down. Uh, so uh, I had been prior to this time, uh, a, a there was a luxury condominium building that was built literally kitty corner from, from our space that was uh, financed by an old collector of mine and just really stunning, stunning units and also very contemporary feeling, poured cement floors, huge you know, white walls with amazing natural light. And they asked me if I would be open to curating the entire building, um, which I thought, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought, okay, well, what, what could it hurt? So this is, you know, as I said, months before, uh, and so I curated over 25,000 square feet of, you know, what I was calling exhibition space. And when it came time, and so we were doing, you know, private showings there. Uh, we were doing, you know, private events. Uh, I, I, you know, I would give, you know, all of the artists I was working with a whole floor that I would, you know, have almost a retrospective that could be on view versus having something in our storage area. Um, so, when COVID hit, I uh, just asked them if they would mind us moving our operations um, over to the building, and they were fine with it. So I went from about 5,000 square feet to over 25,000 square feet of a new, new building, uh, private elevators. Our, our exhibition space that we, we've rendered is in this luxury um, duplex penthouse on top. And then I have, I think, five additional floors that were about the square footage of my old space. So um, it each really, or in total, each, each. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I <laughs> so uh, it was a really unique experience, and it just again, someone's just looking over our shoulder and and you know turning things our way. But uh, it was been. We also had about 2,000 or more square foot of outdoor space, too, where I have sculpture, sculpture garden, and so forth. Um, and uh, so I have been, we have been meeting, you know, very safely and, and uh, you know, different different curators, collectors. And, I'm, and now as we move closer to reopening, um, I'm, I can't wait to start sharing this experience with people, um, meaning... I mean, I want to be able to lend it to the community to have people really safely gather again and just get that notion of of, a, of this community back in some whatever ways we can. So it's been it's been very interesting, and uh, you know, eventually we'll see how it goes. Um, I you know I I've times five my space and it's for free. So um, you know, I I basically cut my costs uh, from general operation from about 70% between uh, not having to just pay for the general space, but then also between not having to pay for art fairs and so forth. So it's, it's a very welcome opportunity. And I've been able to uh, see all of the ways to reallocate those funds to really support artists as more as patrons and a much more beneficial way for them. So that that's, that's what my 2021 has been, uh, and hands so out. Friend of Lumpen Radio, Jared Robin, will be releasing his new single next week. Robin's upcoming album, Cold Rain and Snow, an all-acoustic collection of bluegrass, newgrass, and Americana, will be released this July. This is the world radio premiere of Hey Mr. Doctor. Doctor, tell me please Am I gonna die from this disease? I've been home for weeks and watching you on my TV Hoarding paper ties and taking vitamins Hey, Mr. Doctor, did you know how far they're gonna shove this thing up my nose? Can you tell me when I'll be all good to go? Take a vacation out of Mexico
doctor, where have you gone? I haven't seen you on my TV in so long. Did the president decide you got it wrong? Ship you to the South Pole till you sing his song. complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. What an amazing movie to, to win so many awards already, but there is one more film category that we want to talk about. And that is by far, some would say, the the, the biggest award right. at, that is... the, uh, at the Terry Excellence Awards in Film Scientific Excellence. Right, um, and that is the most scientific movie of the year award. That's a big one, and that and one. that takes uh, encompasses a lot of things. Right. It's it's there has to be a lot of boxes that are checked. Right. For a film to be even considered for this. Right. And so, let alone some, win. If some of the movies that came out this year came out back, you know, in years past, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have won. It was very competitive. For example, uh, I mean, Rowan, I know you really wanted to talk about the Borat's subsequent movie film. Yes, um, that is the chatter. Um, that that is the one most likely to win. It was, yeah, most it was scientific a movie. huge contender because, I mean, what we what do we see here, Rowan? We see a character, a Borat figure, a scientist archetype who is dropped in a confusing world that they do not understand. Uh, things don't make sense, and what this character has to do is use their observation abilities, their sense of logic their sense of, I mean, true perseverance to break through this world, understand it bit by bit, and, and grow accustomed to it. He is he is really the Earth scientist, the perfect scientist. He's investigating, adapting his thesis. As time goes on, he's still curious. He's still trying he's to understand. Individual. And and ultimately, that is the root of all science, isn't it? Endless, boundless curiosity mm-hmm. and and a um, being. Not having answers, but being unafraid. Unfortunately, we do have to give it to Zack Snyder's Justice League once again. Sweeping the Terry Excellence Awards for Scientific Excellence. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.